Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Today, we're going to listen to the story of the people of Israel crossing over the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. So today's scripture reading will be from Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to listen to the text, and then we'll attend to God's word together. So pray with me if you would. Make us to know your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you're the God of our salvation. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, listen now to the book that we love from Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua rose and set out from Shittim with all the Israelites, and they came to the Jordan. They camped there before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place. Follow it so that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Yet there shall be a space between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits. Do not come any nearer to it. Then Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To the priests, Joshua said, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went in front of the people. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that I will be with you as I was with Moses. You are the one who shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, stand still in the Jordan. Joshua then said to the Israelites, draw near and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that among you is the living God, who without fail will drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth shall pass on before you into the Jordan. So now, select from among yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. When the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, come to rest in the waters of the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan flowing from above shall be cut off. They shall stand in a single heap. 
when the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant were in front of the people. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. So when those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who bearing the Ark were dipped in the edge of the waters, the waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, while those flowing toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people passed over opposite Jericho. While all Israel crossed over on dry ground, the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan until the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was surprised a couple of months ago as one morning I was reading some global news to see the River Jordan, that ancient and famous river that features in this story, actually in the news of the day. There was a feature-length article about the river, which was, which was once a fairly mighty and riotous river that's now actually today fairly meager. The article detailed the long decades of conflict that had, that had eroded the physical landscape between the, the Arab peoples and the Israelis, between Jordanian and Syrian people along, along the borders of that river that also formed the borders of their countries. Talked about how agriculture had diverted water in what's one of the driest regions of the world into various countries and depleted the Jordan. Talked about how the realities of climate change had affected the area and that river. And then it talked about several international efforts to replenish the river, given its importance to especially Jewish and Christian people. It talked about how still there are, there are tens and tens of thousands of Jews and Christians every year who visit the river. And the article in conclusion quoted a line from a Jordanian official named Khalil al-Absi, who, talking about the importance of the Jordan, said this. He said, at a fundamental level, water is life. Without water, there is no life. I was struck by that because in many ways, that river in the tapestry of the scriptures is a symbol for, for life and for new life. The moment that we listened to together in the scriptures this morning in which the people of Israel cross over the Jordan River, it happens about four decades after their Red Sea rescue that we listened to together just a couple of weeks ago. The people of Israel are helpless slaves under the thumb of an Egyptian pharaoh, but the living God, Yahweh, hears their cries and springs them into freedom. God rescues them dramatically along the shores of the Red Sea from a certain watery grave out the other side of the sea. And then, they spend the next decades wandering in the wilderness and learning to trust God together under the leadership of Moses. Here in this episode, Moses has died. He's passed the torch of leadership to his, his young protege, Joshua, whose name literally means Yahweh saves. And here they are 
on the border of this river, which also means they're on the border of a new life. If you listen, if you're an alert reader of the scriptures, you can actually hear the echoes here of the two great stories in the Hebrew scriptures, the creation story and the Exodus story. In the creation story that begins the story of the Bible, the living God speaks and creates a cosmos out of murky nothingness. And as God does, in the poetry of Genesis 1, God, God draws apart water and then causes land to emerge and then creates the human community to live on that land in a good place, in Eden. Through water, into life, into a good life in a place to call home. Then in the Exodus story, as God is rescuing the Hebrews, God brings them through a certain death at the shores of the Red Sea, through what should have been a watery grave, and out the other side into freedom, through water into freedom. The river, Jordan, it narrates these stories of life and freedom for the Jewish people. And so for the Hebrews, this river becomes a sign of the rescuing power and the healing love of the living God. The currents of that river, they, they carry that symbolism for the Jewish people for a thousand years, centuries and centuries after this moment in the biblical drama, there is a wild-eyed Jewish prophet named John the Baptizer who begins a renewal movement among the Jewish people. And it's not an accident that he does it on the banks of the Jordan River. And as he does so, he invites people to reconsider their lives and rearrange their lives in light of God and in light of who God is and demonstrate their doing so by being immersed in the waters of the Jordan, by being baptized. One day, John's cousin, named Joshua, or in Greek, Iesus, Jesus, turns up. And Jesus would also be immersed in the waters of the Jordan River in baptism. And then he would go on to be the way that God brings the whole world new life and freedom. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, he talks about his death as a baptism. He will be immersed in the murky waters of the world's death and wickedness and heartbreak so that he could bring a world of people in need of God's grace through his death out into a new life with God. This is why from the very earliest days of the Christian movement, people identified themselves with Jesus and joined the church community by experiencing the waters of baptism through the water into new life, through water into freedom. On the banks of the Jordan River, these wandering tribes are now about to cross over into a new life, into a new place to call home. That word crossover that you heard in the text that we listened to together, it occurs eight times throughout Joshua chapter three. And so I want to invite you to stand at the edge of the waters of the Jordan together with me for a few moments this morning as we watch God's people cross over to a new life. And, and think about this story, consider what it means for us to have crossed over into a new life with God through Jesus. 
I want to suggest as we watch this drama unfold that we watch these people cross the river with an eye for, for how in doing so God gives us a new identity, a new way of life, and a new home. Now, first, we see as the tribes of Israel cross over the Jordan River that in doing so, they're given a new identity. On one side of the Jordan, the people of Israel had been helpless slaves, and then, for decades, simply a band of aimless wanderers. But in crossing the Jordan River, they begin a new life. They're, they're not anymore defined by the sufferings or the wanderings of their past, but by the reality that God's rescued them, that God's been gracious to them. There's a Hebrew Bible scholar named Walter Brueggemann who puts this well. He says, at this moment... Israel does indeed become a new creation. A slave becomes an heir. A helpless child becomes a mature inheritor. I want you to see this because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, the true Joshua, God has also crossed you over into a new life where you've been given a new identity. Here's how Paul puts it in the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. He says, see, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Several years ago, I went through a debacle with the Department of Motor Vehicles in its offices of two different states and its national office. When my family lived in Philadelphia, there was a day in the summer when I drove my family to go have a day at the beach together, or if you're from New Jersey, we went down the shore. And then after we, after we came back, on the way back, I failed to stop correctly at a, at a traffic circle and was given a ticket by a police officer. I paid my ticket like a good citizen, but somehow, and I know this will be a shock to you, some office in New Jersey failed to properly record that I had paid my fine. And so several years later, I was pulled over out of the blue by a police officer who told me that there was a warrant for my arrest because of my traffic crimes in New Jersey. So I assured him that I had indeed given some of my hard-earned cash to the state of New Jersey for my violation, and I proceeded to then spend nearly an entire day on the phone being transferred from the Department of Motor Vehicles in Pennsylvania to the State Department of Motor Vehicles in New Jersey, then to their national office in Washington, D.C., then back to the state office in Pennsylvania again. And I can't tell you what kind of relief I experienced when after, no kidding, four hours on the phone with all of these offices, somebody finally said to me, Mr. Ayers, there is now no record of your violations. There is now no record of your violations. Friends, this is the good news. If you've crossed over into, into a new life with God through Jesus, there is now no record of your violations, of your shame, your guilt, your wanderings, the ugly parts about your life. You've been given a new self. Second, as we watch these people make that migration, we watch them cross over into a new way of life. There's this bit in the center of Joshua 3 
in which Joshua tells the people of Israel that God's going to drive out from before them the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites, just seeing if you're paying attention there. And for people who read the Bible in the modern West, we we get uncomfortable with this part of the scriptures. We, we wonder when we read this part of the Bible if, if the Bible is endorsing holy war or genocide, if, if that's what's going on here. And so if you're somebody who's not a Christian, you, you wonder about that, or, or if you're somebody who is a Christian you, and you don't know what sense to make of that, this is what I want to tell you. Without taking the time to, to explore the topic in its fullness, what I want you to see is that that's actually not what's going on here. First, if you, if you go on to read the, the following sections of the biblical story, there are a number of non-Jewish peoples who actually come to, know the, come to know the living God, come to know Yahweh for themselves. Israel is also not commanded to just go and make war against all, all their enemies or something like that either. These particular tribes are, are named because we know historically they were, they were a snake pit of practices like cultic prostitution that would prey on girls and young women and child sacrifice that would prey on children. And so the point of what's being said here is that God is intending to establish a community that's going to live a new and genuinely human kind of life. God's establishing a community that is going to display his compassion and character and love to the rest of the surrounding world. And that's what we're called to be as well. If you're a baptized follower of Jesus, that's the vocation you're called into as well as part of this community. One of my favorite movies is the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a Coen Brothers movie some of you have no doubt seen, and it's actually a retelling of Homer's ancient epic, The Odyssey, in the rural deep south of America. And it, it features, if you haven't seen the movie, three escaped convicts who get out of jail and then are on a journey together. And there's a certain point in the movie where they come upon a strange group of people who are all dressed in white and singing as they walk through the woods. So the three, they follow this group of strangers, and then they discover that they're all making their way to a riverside for a baptism service. There's a minister in the water who's baptizing people one by one as they all sing together. Two of the three escapees, they immediately rush into the water for baptism along with all of the other people that are there. And the first of them a man named Delmar, he comes up from the water overjoyed, runs out of, the, out of the river back to his friends and announces to them that the minister told him when he came up from the water that all of his sins are washed away and forgotten. Even, he says, the time that he stole a pig from a farmer for which he was caught and convicted and sent to jail in the first place. Now his friend furrows his brow and says, I, you always told us you were innocent of that. Delmar says, I lied, and that's been forgiven too. <laughs> uh, friends, this is, a, this is a picture of what we're called to. We're called to a new way of living. A way of living in which we live like, like the brilliance and presence of God is among us. That's the point of the Israelites carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant. If you're a child of the 80s or 90s like I am, you can't hear 
that phrase in the Old Testament without thinking of Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Nazis try to find and use the Ark of the Covenant and then it melts them all to pieces in the end. That's actually not what's going on here. The Ark is, in the words of one biblical scholar, it's a mobile symbol of God's presence among his people. They're called to live like the God of the universe is actually making their home among them. And that's what we're called to do as well, too. The book of John, in telling us about Jesus, uses this same language to talk about who Jesus is. He says uh, that, that God and Jesus has become flesh, and literally the word that the Gospel of John and John 1 uses is, and tabernacled among us. We have the very presence of the God of the universe among us. So maybe one question for you to puzzle over as you go from worship this morning is, you know, what would it look like for me and my own relationships and the life that I live to, to live like, like I actually have the, the living God of the universe among and, and within me, among the relationships here. We're called to cross over into a new way of life with God. And then last, I want to help you see that in this story of crossing over, God's people are actually crossing over into, into a new home. The Israelites, they spend decades journeying to a promised land that they've never yet been to. Think about that. They spend decades and decades headed toward a place that they're told is their true home, and yet they never see it with their own eyes until this moment. The New Testament actually uses that as an analogy for life in Christ, life with God through Jesus. We follow the living and risen Jesus, the true Joshua. And we follow him through all of our living days until the day when in death we cross over to our true home in God's new heavens and new earth. There's a Christian teacher and leader from the fourth century named Augustine of Hippo was fond of saying that God is our true homeland. God is our true home. In the New Testament, the images that they use for our ultimate hope for a life with God forever, it's not the, it's not the tired images of clouds and cherubs and harps that many of us, many of us you know, imagine in our own minds or inherit from, from prior ages of Western artwork. As the New Testament talks about our ultimate home with God forever, it uses this kind of imagery. It uses the imagery of of living in a new city with God, of being in a new Eden, of being in a forever promised land with God. That is our great hope. In the moments in which our lives are easy and comfortable and affluent, that's what we're called to remember, that ultimately we are not yet in our true home. And in the times when inevitably we brush with our own mortality or as we sorrow over loved ones who we feel, whose absence we feel, this is our deep comfort. That in the words of the old hymn, we are bound for the promised land. One of my favorite depictions of, of the Christian hope is in a series of children's books written by the author C.S. Lewis. He was a literature professor at Oxford who was an atheist for about half his life and then became a follower of Jesus. And after doing so, he wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia that depict the Christian story in an allegorical way. And one in which, the, in which he depicts the Christian hope is a, is a book in that series called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And that book 
the that series of children and animals, they make a journey together to the edge of the world, and then beyond that into Aslan's country, which is his way of talking about eternity. And as they come to, at, to the border of Aslan's country, Lewis writes that things begin to get more and more real, that every color is more vivid, that water is wetter and sweeter, that everything is more real, more weighty, more beautiful than they had ever experienced before. That's the reality that is ahead of us. Just a few weeks ago, I was in the United Kingdom and actually had the chance to visit C.S. Lewis's grave. And the group of us that, we were, that were there together had a, a guide who was a literature professor. And he, he talked about C.S. Lewis's view of the, of the great Christian hope. And he shared with us a short selection from a letter that Lewis read, or excuse me, that, uh, that Lewis wrote to a close friend just, just imminently before his own death. And as he wrote about his own, his own looming death and about the, the Christian hope of life with God forever, I want you to listen to how he talked about that. This is what he said. He said, we are a seed waiting patiently in the earth waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but the cock crow and the daybreak is coming. Friends, this is the good news. If you belong to Jesus, you are bound for the promised land. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.